listening to JR Out Loud, the podcast for Jewish Renaissance magazine, offering a fresh perspective on Jewish culture. I'm Julia Wagner and I'm delighted to be here in London with Nina Menkes, a wonderful American filmmaker who is here for a retrospective at the BFI and the release of her latest film, Brainwashed. Nina Menkes is a groundbreaking independent filmmaker whose work expresses feelings and ideas in ways that counter conventional narrative and storytelling techniques. You have won countless awards for your work, which is praised for its unique vision of psychological states. You're based in the United States, where you were born, but you've also lived and worked in Israel. You're making an invaluable contribution to feminist filmmaking, and it's a real pleasure and honor to have you here with me in conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Your latest documentary is called Brainwashed Sex Camera Power, which is screening at the BFI South Bank throughout May, and the films will also be available online on the BFI player. So hopefully, and I'm surely, we'll be reaching new audiences here in the UK and new generations of young film lovers. Brainwashed, I'm not sure how you would best describe it, but I see it as a cine lecture essay about the gendered power dynamics embedded within the language of cinema. It's about oppression and objectification of women, and you explain the link between screen images and social behaviours. It is perhaps a culmination of your work to date as a lecturer and filmmaker, expressing yourself in a new language, in which you synthesise and clarify ideas that you propose in your non-documentary films in other ways. So can you tell us a bit about how the film came about and how you chose this new direction of expressing ideas which you've been expressing visually over the years? Yeah, it was an interesting process because my narrative films, um, my fictional films, they all come to me sort of from the inside. They sort of appear to me and command my attention. Um, and I'm usually driven to make them against all odds um, by this uh, interior force. Um, in contrast, Brainwashed, um, the film, really came to me from the outside. It came from people asking for it. And the way that happened is that um, as a teacher over the years, and by the way, I never really wanted to be a teacher. I fell into it as a way to pay my rent because my films were very confrontational and unusual and um, I wasn't able to get like a decent budget from Hollywood. Uh, I thought it, I always thought it was because um, maybe I'm, you know, kind of too experimental or my films are too wild or something, but it turns out that there was and still is, although it's finally getting a little repaired, you know, severe, severe, severe sex discrimination within uh, the Hollywood film industry. Of course, worldwide, but uh, in Hollywood, worse than anywhere else. In any event, so because of that, I started um, teaching and, you know, basically paying my rent through teaching. And through the course of teaching, I taught, of course, production. I did not teach film theory, and I really knew nothing about film theory, but I started putting a few film clips together for my students. 
um, to sort of point out this gendered shot design, which is, you know, one of the things we delve into in Brainwash. Um, and and this uh, it was something that I did um, probably like once a semester for my students, and I never thought of it as something outside of a film school. But when um, these two cataclysmic events happened, the first one being the U.S. federal government's investigation of the Hollywood studios for severe sexual discrimination um, that was instigated by one of the women uh, who we interview in Brainwashed, who was also a co-producer on Brainwashed, Maria Geis. Um, the, the federal government found severe sex discrimination, and they went into secret settlement negotiations with the studios, threatening them with literally hundreds of millions of dollars in fines if they didn't step up and repair their statistics. Uh, <clears throat> so that started, that was in 2015, that started kind of a sea change um, in the awareness of women directors or lack of women directors. And that was followed in 2017 by the eruption of the Me Too movement with the publication of the Harvey Weinstein expose in the New York Times. And after that, which was the, uh, the New York Times was October 2017, I wrote an essay for uh, Filmmaker Magazine in which I kind of drew this devil's knot, the triangle, linking the visual language of cinema with severe employment discrimination and sexual assault, sexual abuse epidemics. And this little essay went viral, and it became their most popular essay of the entire year. And then I started getting invitations to give my talk around the world. In fact, I gave my talk here at the London Film Festival in 2019. And um, it was very well received. And everywhere I gave the talk, people would come up to me and say, please make this into a movie. You can't just go around showing it to 50 people here and 20 people here. You know, like the whole world has to see this. Um, so it, it really was a film that seemed like there was a need for it. And it was, you know, an idea whose time has come maybe. Um, so that was the, that was how it came into being. Well, thank you for articulating something <laughs> that some of us have been sort of quietly muttering while watching things with friends or asked to comment on a film and, and people will say, do you want to come and see this film with me? And I just say, oh, I, I don't think I'm going to like it. And, and it's, it's very hard to articulate that, um, what it is that might make me feel uneasy about certain films, knowing the genres, knowing the director. And I think I'd rather not go there and what you've done in Brainwashed is really articulate and show examples of the the build-up of impact and how insidious or widespread it might be. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that and I'm sure it's going to keep running here and, and be and used within um, lectures. One thing that I find um, quite difficult as a lecturer is finding clips from alternatives. So what you've done is pivot on that and you've shown how widespread the mainstream language is without having the problem of coming up against the archive, the problems of archiving, which I think is something that you've come up with in your work, that films are not repeatedly shown, if they're not restored, if they're not in the syllabus, then each generation has to learn afresh. 
And is that something that you've come up with through your teaching as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the there's a whole system where women have been erased. I mean, I, I think that uh, Alice Guy Blachet, I had never heard of her until 2018 when that film came out. Be Natural. Uh, yeah. yeah, never heard of her. And I, I, I've spoken to a lot of uh, people, fellow filmmakers, you know, and people were like, that I never even heard of this name. And here she's really the very first, she's really the mother of narrative cinema. She made the very first narrative film back in 1898. And she made dozens, I don't know how many films she made. Um, no one heard of her. Erased, erased, erased. So women are constantly feeling like we have to reproduce the wheel, you know, the fight. We have to start the fight again. Um, it's 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 exhausting. Well, hopefully with digitization that will be lessened slightly. Yes. I'm really interested in what you said about Brainwash having come from the outside <clears throat> because it's also the first film in which you feature on screen quite a lot. <laughs> so I was curious about what that was like for you to be the subject and object <laughs> of the gaze, but it, yeah. now it makes sense in the, the way that you've described that it came from the outside, yeah. which perhaps makes it more of a balanced transition, I suppose. Yeah. How, how was it for you? Yeah, well, um, first of all, being on camera was quite traumatic for me. It's, you know, I'm obviously a director and I also shoot my own films and I, I'm a photographer and a cinematographer and I absolutely never wanted to be in front of a camera and it was quite traumatic for me when I first saw the footage and we started editing, it was really, really difficult for, I had to just get over it, you know, and uh, sort of like, I got used to it finally and then I, then I could forget about it. But like being on camera and seeing myself on camera was, was not um, something, first of all, not something I ever aspired to and it was, it was weird for me. <laughs> um, it was, it was not that comfortable and I, I sort of um, found it you know, very much like confrontational for myself about all the issues that were inside the film. You know, it's like, I have to look beautiful. I have to look, you know, I look fatter on the camera than I really am. Oh my God. You know, all of these thoughts. Um, it, it was pretty funny. But I think that uh, the other thing that was very important about having me actually in the film is that, you know, because some people, you know, uh, some friends of ours, like when they saw an early cut, they said like, oh, you should take you yourself out and just have like voiceover, you know, like more of an essay film. So it would be like wall to wall clips with voiceover, which is a way a, lo a lot of these films are normally done. Um, and myself and the editor, Cecily Rett, you know, we discussed it and we felt it was very, very important that, you know, even though I'm uncomfortable with my own image, which who cares, not uh, that, that I had to just get over. But it was very important that my physical body, you know, that me as a woman, as a filmmaker, my physical body was on the screen. And that also all of those sequences where like you see me watching the film and then you see the audience. And so it's it's kind of making it, the intervention very explicit. And also a friend of mine um, in Vienna 
told me, you know, we talk about visual pleasure. Of course, Laura Mulvey's famous essay is narrative, uh, visual pleasure, narrative cinema. And, you know, we have to ask, you know, visual pleasure for whom? And what my friend in Vienna said is she said, you know, I got intense pleasure from seeing your body on the screen. You were mediating objectification for us. You were standing in for all of those things I felt for so many decades. And it was like very moving to me, she said, to have your body there on the screen. And that was pleasure for me. So, I, I mean, that was not anything we ever thought of, but I, I was really happy to hear that, that it made sense on that level. And it works also because we feel more like we're in the audience and we see your audience members. So we feel that we're being spoken to directly by you. And, and I think it's very, very effective. You mentioned the other things that you do um, as part of your filmmaking work and alongside it, um, photography, things like that. How did you get into filmmaking? How did you choose film as your medium or did it choose you? Um, yeah, well, I was, uh, when I was a teenager, I was a dancer and a choreographer and I always did photography, still photography. And um, I actually, <laughs> I just kind of, I just realized this. It was a summer when I, I was a teenager, um, somehow or other, I can't remember how this came about, but anyway, I ended up spending a summer in London um, and I lived in a flat with a few other dancers. And we were taking classes um, at some dance school. I don't remember which one. And my one of my roommates, um, his boyfriend was in film school in London. And we were sitting around and he was like, I'm supposed to make a short film and I don't have any ideas. And I was like, ooh, maybe you shouldn't be in film school. <laughs> I have an idea. <laughs> I have 10 ideas. And he was like, oh, you do? You know, what's your idea? So I actually had an idea. You know, it, it ended up sort of to be this dance film, but I built this elaborate set and I choreographed the dance and I basically directed the whole film. And... Um, he claimed it as his film for the school. Um, Good practice, perhaps, <laughs> for the industry. <laughs> and it's really funny because I went home. Um, before the film was finished, I went home um, back to Berkeley, California, and um, he sent me a print of the film. Of course, this was like long before anything, anything digital existed. And, um, you know, I watched the film, and at the end it said a film by, you know, his name, I can't remember his name, and I was like, wow, but that that was actually like absolutely my film. I did everything in this film. So um, anyway, that was my first experience, but I sort of fell in love with film, and I felt the power of film, and I started, I made another film by myself um, that was also sort of dance film, sort of dance film, um, and then I was I was hooked. I don't know. It just it just worked for me, like the combination of photography and movement and space and sound. And I applied to the UCLA Film School and I got in. And that's Fantastic. it. <laughs> and I've seen from your previous films, there's certain motifs and ideas and tones that recur. 
But how do you see that your filmmaking has changed over the years since the, since the initial um, having your idea um, borrowed? Well, else? I mean, certainly brainwashed is my most, I guess the word is accessible. Um, you know, it, it was made on purpose for kind of a wider audience and it was made very much for an audience. Now, I know that, you know, I've been teaching film for a long time and um, for me, film is an art form, you know, and there's always this discussion, it's this old discussion, but, you know, art versus business and certainly in Hollywood, they only care if your film makes money. They don't care if it's a beautiful piece of work. But my approach to film had always been that, you know, it's an art form. And I'm, I, I very specifically, in all of my films, um, up until Brainwashed, in all of my films, I purposely never thought about the audience. I mean, that's one question you know, people, well, who's your audience and who's it for? It's like, it's for me. It's for, it's for cinema. It doesn't, I don't know who the audience is. I'm doing something that comes from inside me that needs to be born and I'm going to do it. And I don't know who it's for and I don't care who it's for, but it has to be made. Um, so Brainwash was very different in that sense that, you know, it was, it was requested from the outside and it was for the outside. And I don't know if I answered your question because I think I veered off. Well, you started off um, doing student films, effectively, mm -hmm, if you're interested mm -hmm. in student film. And then you worked with your sister. Mm. And then I suppose your cast crew grew as oh, the years yeah. go, go, went on. And I'm curious about how your relationship with cinema changed through those years and how mm. you, you think differently, how you might oh. approach a project differently or how you... Um, as since the, the yeah. 2017 as well, like how you view um, the, the language of cinema differently as you've lived and worked within it. Yeah. Or perhaps the same. Maybe you see it as your personal language, which yeah, aligns with yeah, the art that's form. More, that's more like it. I, I don't, um, I mean, <clears throat> it sounds strange to say that... Um, I haven't shifted my relationship to cinema, but I think that it's more <clears throat> that cinema for me has always been kind of a way um, of speaking, um, a way of conjuring. Um, you know, my sister Tinka said uh, once, when we go out to make a film, it's like, you know, jumping into the unknown or, or fishing with a bait. You know, the script is your bait and you're going out to fish and you hope you catch a big one, but you don't know what you're gonna catch. So there's there's this, you know, a, a, another metaphor might be like um, the Oz books, you know, the, the road to Oz. We used to say this as well, like every film is a different road to Oz. So it's, the film itself is a process of discovery and exploration, whereas I think, you know, the more traditional films, you know, because they're worried about money and because they're extremely expensive, you know, every single thing is pre-mapped out and predetermined and reviewed by a million people. By the time you go to make it, it's not very fresh. Um, as opposed to having it be the film itself is an organic entity that comes out of an organic process that's not a recreation. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that does come forth in your films. I feel like the immediacy of sitting in and with the sounds and images is very strong and I don't find myself thinking oh that the writer's room must have had fun over this scene it's it's right, a different right, right. kind of it's experience yeah yeah I'm curious also about um the use of Hebrew language and imagery mm. in your film it's something that some viewers may not pick up on if they if they can't see the Hebrew right. uh, text or font or, or, or hear it um I think it's in the bloody child um the, the woman is, is writing on her arm in a, a bracha. And I was wondering what it sort of means to you, whether that language of um, Hebrew is has some kind of quality to it that rings something forth within you, or is it more instinctive? And... Um, well, it's both. Um, my um, Both my parents... Um, arrived, well, my mother as a baby um, and my father as a young child arrived in Jerusalem via the Holocaust. And um, so my father's family were, they were all gassed um, in the concentration camps and he was rescued. So <clears throat> he had, his first language was German and then he was brought to Jerusalem, you know, completely traumatized as a child. And then he learned Hebrew as a second language. English was a third language. My mother's family were Jews from Berlin. And they wisely got out in 1933 when Hitler came to power. My mother was a baby. And they immigrated to Palestine, it was. And... Um, so my mother also had German as a mother tongue and then Hebrew and English as, as the third language. And then when my parents got married and left for the United States, and they both went to New York University, lived in the village, <laughs> different world. Um, so I um, grew up in the United States, but we would go almost every summer to visit my mother's parents. My father had no parents, but um, so I speak fluent Hebrew, and I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so Hebrew is um, a big part of my life, and um, it's, I'm not a religious Jew in the sense of observant, but um, spiritual questions are pretty central to my work and my life. It's interesting that in your description just now, I heard you you put Hebrew in the middle of both your parents' journeys. There yeah. Was a, a language before and after for both. Right. And perhaps that's something in your films. It's it's something that's maybe protected or mm. cosseted. I don't know. I'm I'm just yeah. um, putting that out there. I just picked up on the way that you describe it as sort of quickly sandwiched, yeah. quickly it's, sandwiched by other. Things. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, I I think it's really quite a big part of my life, even though, you know, I live uh, in Los Angeles and, you know, it's not, it's not a daily part of my life, but it's uh, certainly a very meaningful part of kind of my consciousness, maybe. So yeah. Dissolution was um, made in Israel yeah. um, with, with Israeli cast. Yeah. Was that a film that was made there and in Hebrew for practical reasons? Or for you, was it a story that had to be told in that environment. Yeah, it had to be told in that environment. And that was another film that, you know, sort of 
came to me, um, I didn't, I mean, it came from the inside for sure, but it was, it was quite unexpected. I had a uh, Fulbright grant to Israel for one year. I was teaching at Tel Aviv University, and um, I was living in Jaffa, Yafo, they, in, they call it in Hebrew, um, and I was sort of just soaking up the atmosphere, and I, st I thought, like, oh, I'll make a documentary about all the stray cats, because there's millions of stray cats, um, and then through the course of various sort of strange events, um, I started rereading Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, and I was reading it, um, and I was sort of like struck that that story felt so incredibly relevant to the situation in Israel, especially in Jaffa, you know, and the, the tension between the Arabs and the um, Jews and the, you know, the attempt to basically kick the Arabs out of Jaffa, you know, um, which is ongoing. And um, so somehow the whole film kind of came to me while I was there as a perfect metaphor for that situation. So no, I don't think it could have been made anywhere else. And you decided to film it in <clears throat> black and white. So what was what was the reasoning behind um, that? Because your previous well, films, the, the colors are so vivid yeah. and integral. Well, Phantom Love was also black and white. Um, I think that I was afraid that if it was color, it would sort of be a little too, um, I don't know, folklorico feeling. Like, and also the black and white to me, it evokes a little bit St. Petersburg and it evokes kind of that Dostoevsky reference. Um, it makes it more abstract and it makes it more difficult to place in time, I think, um, which is something I wanted. I wanted it to be very, a little bit timeless and a little bit dreamy, even though it's still rooted very strongly in the current political situation. Yeah, without it being explicitly um, about the current politics. Well, yeah. current then and current now. Current so. then and current now, sadly. Um, in Dissolution, this is the first time that you've used a male actor as a protagonist. And for somebody who's um, so committed to representing the female perspective and n f filming women in unusual or different ways, um, which seem more... Um, from your perspective, perhaps. Can you talk us through how you approached that and what your thought was behind that? Like all of my work, really, it was a very intuitive process and an intuitive progression. Um, you know, when I, when I got excited about the idea of crime and punishment in Jaffa, obviously I needed Raskolnikov. <laughs> and um, Raskolnikov happened to be my neighbor, who I met on the street, and he looked to me like Raskolnikov. I just thought, like, oh, my God, that's him. And then when, later when we talked about it and I suggested him to be in the film, he said, my whole life I felt like Raskolnikov. So I was like, all right, God has uh, arranged this one. But um, if I think about it sort of intellectually, I, I feel that, you know, my films form a progression 
that begin with the Great Sinus of Zohara and move through, you know, the, the figure that, are, the female figure that's tracked through all my films goes through a certain transformation. And the film before Dissolution, which was Phantom Love, the female figure has a certain kind of opening or awareness or enlightenment that 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 sort of happens to her towards the end. And I think that after that, I was ready to look at the wounded male. So I've been looking at the wounded female this whole time. And then, like, you know, you don't have the wounded female without having the wounded male. They're, they're a bonded pair. And so looking at this man who's violent and um, misogynist, basically, and he's violent towards women. He kills at least one, possibly two women. Um, it made sense psychologically to look at that character at that point in my own inner progression. The way you film him is, is very interesting, captivating, very often from behind his shoulder, looking over the shoulder, and there's very few um, close-ups of his face, which is also something that you tend to avoid in, in other films. So what's your reasoning behind that in this film and in others as well, showing different angles or sort of refusing the conventional yeah. face on um, sort of access to the interior? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons I love to shoot my own films or at least operate camera on my own films is that I really use the camera as as a way to um, understand what's happening in the scene. And I always work with a zoom lens because maybe I'll want to zoom in or maybe I'll want to zoom out. And, and I don't want to pre-plan that. So I think that all the characters in the films, they're sort of, you know, shadowy sides. They're kind of secret sides or hidden sides. They're not, they're not the obvious real-life person. They're sort of like the dream side of the person or the underside. And, and the camera is a little afraid <laughs> of the character um, and doesn't, can't get too close. Um, so it's a very personal, intuitive uh, feeling about the character and what that character represents to me, um, as opposed to trying to tell a story with a shot. I wanted to ask you about the use of sound and how you, how you record it, how you mix it, and how you know when it's right, which is a very uh, complex <laughs> question, but I, I ask because... I find your use of sound really captivating and the way that you will sometimes play two concurrent soundtracks, which can I wouldn't say cancel each other out, but make both indistinguishable. Mm. And this is something which is so lifelike that when we see it on screen, well, hear it, I'm saying see it because I suppose you do see the sound. Um, it's surprising because it's so rarely replicated in films. And how do you approach that? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked me about that because I, I feel like sound is such an important part of my work and I really love doing the sound and I, I've always cut all my own sound. And um, for me, a, a, a very creative um, 
and um, intuitive process to put the sound together for a film. For example, um, The Great Sadness of Zohara, which was shot in Israel and North Africa. Um, I shot that film with my sister Tinka on 16 millimeter film and we traveled with our cameras and we had no sound at all. And when we got back to LA, we developed all the film and I looked at it, it was beautiful and I started cutting it. And finally I had this 40 minute film with no sound and because uh, there was no sync sound. And I had no idea what to do with the sound. And I, I just started playing around with sounds. And I tried, you know, this, I tried a million things. In fact, I, I spent probably eight hours a day for months trying sounds that didn't work. And I remember this as I was at UCLA, um, one of the teachers, I said, God, I've been working for three months and I've done nothing. And he said, that's not true at all. You've been eliminating things that don't work, and that's very valid, um, which was smart of him to say. And then, anyway, soon after that, I remember finding the first sound. It was sort of the um, sort of strange woman singing in the corridors of Tangier. And when I put that on the, on the up against the picture, I suddenly was like, wow. So that's that. what I felt was like, you know, you have the picture, you know, it's worth one point and the sound is worth one point. But if you put the right sound with the right picture, it's like one plus one is 10, you know. Um, and so I then meticulously built sound for every single shot and played around with it. And I would say I still use the same approach. It's just I'm, I'm faster now because I have more, I'm, I know more what will probably work, but I can still be wrong because like, of course, because like in Dissolution, um, I had built a quite an elaborate soundtrack and then I worked on it for a long time and then I stepped back and watched the whole film and I was like, oh my God, you've ruined it with too much sound. And then I had to go in and pull out like half of what I had done. And now sometimes people say, oh, that's such a kind of quiet film. It's almost silent, which is not true. It has a very elaborate soundtrack, mm. but it feels kind of quiet in a way. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something to do with the color as well. I think uh, we expect color films to be whistles and bells. Everything's ringing and, and black and white to be calmer, but... Maybe but that's <laughs> not psychologically. I'm not sure if that really is the case. It's up to your instinct, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the great sadness of Sahara, <clears throat> and that's the earliest of your films, which is showing in this retrospective. Yeah. And I'm, I'd like to know, is that one of the films that you would direct audiences to if you had to say, you, if somebody could only make it to two, which ones? Oh um, yeah, that one. Which... I mean, I I dearly love that film, and that film was made with a certain complete innocence you know I knew nothing about the film business I knew nothing about selling films I knew nothing about sexism in this film industry nothing you know and it was like a pure a complete pure cinematic experience making it and I feel like I really love that film and it it definitely holds up to time um so if you could only see two I don't know the great sadness and I'm sure if people see I'm sure if people see two they will then go on to see the rest <laughs> okay I hope maybe so. two in cinemas and the rest um, yeah uh, elsewhere if 
if that's the way that it works for them. Um, I'd like to ask you about The Queen of Diamonds and the other films of yours which have had new restorations. What's that process been like for you and for audiences coming to them afresh? Well, for me, it was a dream for a long time, you know, as I shot my um, films um, on 16 and 35, and then, you know, more and more, that was not a format that anyone was watching films on, you know, and everything became digital, and I had these, like, really low-quality transfers, and it was it was kind of cringeworthy for me to show the films on video, and I didn't want that but you know restorations are incredibly expensive and I I I was just sort of you know for years I was just praying that some miracle would happen and somebody would restore the films um and actually that's what happened a miracle happened and somebody <laughs> restored the film <laughs> um, I remember I got a phone call from Mark Toscano at the Academy Film Archive and he said you know I'm calling to tell you that I applied for a grant to restore Queen of Diamonds I applied to the uh, Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation and we got the grant and I was like oh my god he hadn't even told me that he had applied or anything um, and so they gave him a grant for that. And then um, also The Bloody Child was restored by the Scorsese Foundation in collaboration with the Academy Archives. And the others were restored by the Academy Archives. Fantastic. Yeah. So I, I, was, I was, you know, I was and am deeply, deeply grateful for the restorations because there's no comparison to the old prints. And do you continue to work on film, or are you working on digital? Well, the um, the last films have been digital, but I would, if I had a chance to shoot on film, I would, I would, I would love it. Is you that, know, I think is that I, what's next? I hope so. I think you know the best of both worlds is shoot on film if you can, and then um, post in in digital. I mean, because digital post, there's no comparison, you know, to how we used to post. I mean. It's just crazy. I I mean, I, I can't even, you know, people who haven't experienced it don't remember what it was like, you know, to time a film the way we used to time films is, you know, you sit in the theater with the timer and the film is, is running by in real time and a little more yellow, a little darker, a little, you know. I mean, now you can every, you know, oh, you stop on a frame and you can window out little make millions of I mean I heard that Roma I heard that he spent I think someone told me six months making the digital internet so that entire film like frame by frame they like recreated in the DI um, of course me I got like one day for <laughs> Bloody Child and Queen of Diamonds. One day for digital timing. Yeah, but still it was great. And are you working on new films now? Are you constantly Well, I, I have two new scripts. And uh, if anyone's listening and wants to help finance. <laughs> um, yeah, I have two new scripts, which I would love to shoot. Okay, get in touch. <laughs> get in touch. I'm sorry to say that we're coming to the end of our meeting time, but it's All been right. an absolute pleasure to Same. sit down and speak to you and discuss your, your work. Thank you. Um, 
The films of Nina Menkes are screening at the BFI South Bank and online via the BFI Player. And thank you for coming to speak to me today, Nina. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to JR Out Loud. For more podcasts and info about our events, magazine, and features, head to jewishrenaissance.org.